0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by Ferris, Strauss, and Drew. One book out from FSG that we think you'd like is Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America by James Foreman Jr., who, you might remember, was on my show last week. Why is it that majority black cities incarcerate so many of their own citizens? James Foreman Jr.'s story of race, crime, and punishment is an original view of our criminal justice system as well as a moving portrait of the human beings caught in its coils. Jennifer Sr. at the New York Times tweeted that Locking Up Our Own is the best book that she's read this year. The New York Times Book Review said that it compels readers to wrestle with some very tough questions about the nature of American democracy and its deep roots in racism, inequality, and punishment. Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman Jr., published by Ferrer, Strauss, and Giroux. Pick up or download your copy now. Hey, this is Bosker Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but The Dig and Dan Dumper are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on this sh- uh, show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. So uh, support this show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's Patreon, P A T R E O N. Com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Donald Trump appears to many in the guise of a terrifying aberration. But in reality, he is the outcome of trends that are far too normal. His administration has just cut out the middlemen, dispensing with bought-off political intermediaries and putting corporate and Wall Street titans directly in charge. Even his crudeness and penchant for insult, the qualities that most offend his establishment rivals, are the result of a long commercial onslaught that portrays ostentatious wealth and brute power as synonymous with virtue. In a country where a living wage is out of reach for so many, state-run lotteries and state-sanctioned casinos provide a meager recompense for tax revenue that should be coming out of rich people's pockets, but isn't. And so the long-shot dream of striking it rich has taken the place of collective vehicles like labor unions that could ensure that everyone can live a decent life. Trump's brand is gauche to his detractors, But for others, in a political landscape where big utopian dreams have been prohibited from the mainstream, it can seem an inspiration. My guest, Naomi Klein, takes on Trump's brand and offers some thoughts on how to tarnish it in her new book, No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. Klein is an award-winning journalist, syndicated columnist, and the author of multiple books. This changes everything Capitalism versus the Climate, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, and No Logo. Naomi Klein, welcome to The Dig.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Trump is, by his own administration's admission, a shock to the system, which dovetails pretty neatly with arguments that you've made for quite a long time about how political economic elites exploit and even exacerbate and deepen crises to push through unpopular measures. Why is Trump so shocking and what is that shock being used to accomplish?
1: Right, so, so they do describe themselves as a shock to the system and there was a great deal of glee and pride taken um, in the speed with which they moved in their first 100 days, this is basically Trump's main braggable, is that he apparently, you know, passed more executive fiat than any president before him in the first 100 days. And, you know, it, it, it was like um, what, Economists used to call shock therapy, right? This, this, uh, and they don't use that term anymore because they got so so much flack for it. Um, just rapid fire policy uh, um, change that sort of has everybody reeling because things are coming at you from all directions, and 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 you're scrambling. And the idea is to uh, is 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 to, is to is to is to harness that sense of disorientation to push it all through at once, but. This is not the way it is usually done, and it's not what I have written about in the past, which (laughs) is a a two-pronged shock strategy where there's some sort of external shock, like the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then that shock being harnessed to push through economic shock therapy or a military coup like in Chile, um, and that being used to... Push through what Milton Friedman called the shock treatment economically, right? Um, in, in Trump's case, there isn't an external shock except Trump himself, right? Um, and the shock, and the state of shock that they um, sort, sort of keep people in with their just sheer outrageousness, corruption, incompetence, and the and you know what what I think deserves to be called the Trump Show of just sort of the endless drama that surrounds this administration. Um, this is different. Uh, it, it, this, is, this is something new. Um, I'm quite concerned about how this administration would actually exploit an external shock because I think that there could very well be an, um, a major economic crisis on their watch, and um, they're certainly doing their best to deregulate markets very quickly, which makes that more likely. Um, they are doing their best to antagonize the world, which makes terrorist attacks more likely. Uh, so, you know, that's why I wrote the book, because I don't think that this is, what we've seen so far, is really what I mean by the shock doctrine. And, and I don't actually think Trump really should be all that shocking. I think he's in many ways, um, in an entirely predictable, cliched outcome of of, 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 of many, many pre-existing trends. The, the, the point of a shock is that it's a rupture in the world you thought you knew, you know, and a lot of people have claimed to be sh- shocked by Trump's election, but I, I'm not so sure that, that's, that we should accept that on face value, because there's a way in which be, claiming to be so shocked by Trump uh, absolves the us of, of Taking some responsibility in, in in the culture that produced Trump.
0: If there was something like a, a mass terrorist attack, obviously there's the the concern of how that could be exploited, a la what Erdogan has accomplished in Turkey since the coup attempt, of really using that moment of an actual external shock to push through um, Bannon's you know most deepest and grimmest desires. But so far, Trump has seemed really. Inept in a lot of um, ways. Um, what do you make of of his ineptitude, and how do you square that with the more disturbing machinations, like the um, move to repeal Dodd Frank that has barely gotten any attention? That's that's underway right now.
1: So I'm I'm quite disturbed by this narrative narrative of of ineptitude um, because I think people, some people, seem to be. Becoming a little complacent, like for instance, when when Trump withdrew, announced that the U.S. was withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. I tweeted that I thought that what he was doing was essentially throwing a bone to his anti-globalist base, right? The the, the Breitbart, um, basically, we hate all things international, right? Um, because he was going to sell them out on trade. And while he was made that announcement, just in, in that same twenty-four hour period, his commerce secretary was out there reassuring business audiences that the way they were going to renegotiate NAFTA was going to make it more like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a massive betrayal of of Trump's um, working class voters uh, who really, you know, believed what he said about trade and. um... And, and, you know, the response was really interesting to me, because I was just bombarded with with, with people saying, you know, like, they, don't give them, don't, 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 like, Trump can't do strategy, you know, there's no, they, and it was just like, don't give him the credit, he's just an idiot, you know, and... Um, you know, I mean, I think he's an idiot, but I think the people around him are capable of you know basic levels of strategy. Like we'll throw we'll throw up this bone to the base because it doesn't cost corporate America much. Um, and though they claim to you know want you know many corp- U.S. corporations claim to want the U.S. to stay in Paris, they want uh, to protect uh, um, the co- the corporatist model of free trade far more than that, right? Um, so. You have, I think, there's just two two layers going on, and there's Trump, and then there's the Republican Party. Uh, and the Republican Party, Mitch McConnell, I don't think has ever had it so good, because the Trump show um, is is providing this constant cover for them to pursue. This wish list of policies, from the health, you know, help, help so-called healthcare reform, which is really just this massive tax giveaway, um, an incredibly cruel policy, um, to a uh, uh, tax on social security, which fly in the face of of what Trump campaigned on. To as you say, dismantling Dodd Frank. I mean, all of this would be, you know, front page news, again and again and again, and it barely merits a footnote because our press is completely addicted to Trump. They're addicted to the Trump show because their ratings have never been so good. And what's frightening about this is that it is really the conditions that allowed Trump to win, right? Well, Mm. media's addiction... To, to Trump's theatrics, right? And then there were all these mea culpas. We shouldn't have given him so much airtime, right? They've learned nothing because they have never had it so good. The, 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 the You know, the news media has never had it so good. They've never, you know, the ratings are boffo. Um, and it, you can see it physically pains them, uh, <laughs> these news anchors, to, to, to spare a minute talking about healthcare or talking about Dodd-Frank because they're worried that, you know, they're going to lose
0: viewers. I think you're right that it might not be Ineptitude, though, Trump does his lack of self-control does seem to sincerely bother some of his advisors, But there are some serious contradictions within the Republican coalition that have so far as yet prevented them from passing major pieces of legislation.
1: But I think they're getting closer on tax. You know, if they get through what they're trying to get through, right, I mean, a 15% corporate tax, getting rid of the estate tax, getting rid of Dodd-Frank, health care reform, getting rid of, you know, Obama's health care policy, you know, this is is Christmas morning. Um, So this is not to say that they won't throw Trump under the bus when he ceases to be useful, but at the moment... This is what bothers me about this narrative of incompetence is that you know I think it sort of is encouraging people to relax and sort of tell themselves, well they're not going to do that much damage. Uh, and you know there's, there's no doubt that there has been effective pushback, most notably against the travel ban. Um, but you know my worry uh, and the reason why I'm sort of harping on this point of we haven't seen what they will do with an external shock to exploit. Is that that will that will immediately come back up, right? I mean, Trump's already shown his hand. He, you know, what we, you know, he said that you know, if something happens, blame the courts. Then, when the terrorist attacks happened in England, the Manchester attack and the London Bridge attack, Trump immediately used both those events to push through his uh, anti-immigrant agenda. First, saying that about Manchester that um, this is this is about people streaming across our borders, even though the bomber was born in the U.K. and then responding to the London bridge attacks uh, by saying, this is why I need my, my, my travel ban. Now, if there were a major event like that in the United States, uh, you know, they would be in a position to declare a state of emergency, which would make the types of protests we saw in the face of that travel ban um uh, illegal, right? And, and you know, this happened in France uh, just a, a couple of years ago in, in 2015 when there were coordinated terrorist attacks in Paris that took 200 lives. Um, you know, the, the, the government of François Hollande uh, declared a state of emergency, which has yet to be repealed in France. So, you know, I don't think it's sort of conspiratorial to think that, well, if that happened, under a left center left government in France in a country which actually has a far more tolerance for disruptive strikes than the United States what could we expect you know in Trump's America
0: This episode of the dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by Verso which has been publishing radical books for nearly half a century One title that we think dig listeners would enjoy is October the Story of the Russian Revolution, by award-winning author, China Mieville. In a panoramic sweep stretching from St. Petersburg and Moscow to the remotest villages of a sprawling empire, October is a narrative history that uncovers the catastrophes, intrigues, and inspirations of 1917 in all their passion, drama, and strangeness. Intervening in long-standing historical debates, but told with the reader new to the topic especially in mind, This is a breathtaking story of humanity at its greatest and most desperate, of a turning point for civilization that still resonates loudly today. On The Centenary of the Russian Revolution, check out October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville, out now from Verso. You write about um, Trump being the sort of consummate brand president. What is his brand, and how does it function to cop uh, to cop, uh, sorry to cultivate popular support, even uh, if it's never been a majority popular support?
1: Right. So, so the brand that he has been selling for a very long time is um, is is power through accrued through vast wealth, the power and freedom, really the impunity uh, that comes with with that great wealth, that that the sort of almost cartoonish uh, dream. Well, not almost, very cartoonish dream. Um, And so that, you know, he's been selling that since he, uh, you know, came out with Art of the Deal. And he, you know, has many of these get rich -rich schemes and Trump, you know, university and The Apprentice itself was this, uh, you know, this dream of the ticket into, to Trump world. Um, And you know, the, the, the what is dangerous about the trump brand is that it makes him uh he has a relationship with his base that is that is one that he's built over decades embodying this brand and it's one that is, is it, that is hard to hold him accountable tr- in, in tr- through traditional political means you know, catching him in a corruption scandal catching him lying you know, all of these things where the media class is sort of amazed by what Trump is getting away with, but that is his brand. He's the guy that gets away with whatever he gets away with because he is living the dream that comes from extreme wealth. Um, so his base is not scandalized. They're rooting for him because they have this aspirational relationship with him, which is the aspirational relationship that a lifestyle brand has with its with its consumer base. And it's also why I think it is really so unfortunate that so much of the news media is focused exclusively, um, almost exclusively on the, the Russia scandals and Comey and all the investigations, because, you know, the way this is metabolized by Trump's base is, uh, you know, that this is just one team attacking another team, they identify with with trump um, they 're not scandalized by by this at all, whereas I think he is vulnerable in other ways, and not so much that the Trump brand is vulnerable, although as i 've written you know there are ways to jam it by presenting Trump as you know not a boss not, you know as a puppet and and going after his branded empire. But the more important question is how to jam the MAGA brand had a that make the Make America Great brand, which is the promise he made to workers in the United States that he was going to bring the jobs back, that he was going to stand up for them, that he was going to you know, return them to the good old days, um, and uh, the economic project that he is pursuing in so many ways um betrays that that promise and this is why it is so unfortunate that there's so little coverage for that because although the ratings may be spectacular for the Trump show it I don't think it I think it does very little to erode his base
0: yes so trump's the trump brand has these built-in self defenses because his brand is being immoral, doing horrible things is, is on brand. So not a problem. As he said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters. But you're arguing that the MAGA brand, there are more vulnerabilities there because ultimately, um, maybe after he's been in power a year or two or three, and people don't see their material conditions improving, that America's not being made great again, that, um, that people can start to Trump's opponents could start to 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 pick at at that and say, "Look, um, America has only gotten worse under under your administration."
1: I think so, and I think he's vulnerable on uh, on the broken promises to drain the swamp, um, the fact that he has appointed so many corporate lobbyists to his administration, the fact that he has appointed five former Goldman Sachs executives to his cabinet after. Campaigning, attacking Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton for being in the pocket of Goldman Sachs, I think he's vulnerable on that. But this stuff has barely been a footnote in in the coverage of the Trump show. Uh, so I don't think we necessarily have to wait for people to see that their material conditions have diminished. Uh, you know, I think I think. You know there there's a lot to go on now in what he is actually doing to social security, to health care, uh, to handing power over over to lobbyists um, and just comparing that to what he said on the campaign trail, we We see little snippets of it and certainly I think Bernie Sanders is doing a good job of highlighting those contradictions. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is too, but it's it's largely being drowned out by the Trump show and this you know strategy that we seem to that, that seems to have emerged from uh, that the sort of upper echelons of the Democratic Party that the plan is to build the case for impeachment and then run in twenty in twenty eighteen on a campaign to give the Democrats back the House so they can impeach Trump, which is once again digging in further on this purely negative based campaign. Right. The reason I called my book "No is Not Enough" is because there has to be an offer. It is not just. It is not enough to just say no to this guy and reject him. And this is what, how Hillary Clinton campaigned, right? Um, a fear of, of Trump. And it seems like the strategy uh, of all of this focus on creating the conditions for impeachment is to run in 2018 on an even more negative platform with no offer, to working people about how the democrats are going to improve their lives.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a negative approach and it's also one that's trying to take Trump down on legalistic individual terms rather than going after the broader right-wing ideology that that sustains it.
1: Yeah, and it's also an approach that conveniently lets the DNC off the hook, right? Because if it's all been one vast Russian conspiracy, um, then they were robbed, um, and, and, and it, you know the, the election was legitimately theirs, and they don't have to confront why they had such depressed voter turnout and why they failed to energize their base. It's all this vast conspiracy.
0: I think the idea of no is not enough is really critical. Um, And looking back at the Sanders campaign and the um, surprising popularity of actually putting forward a big picture vision of what we're fighting for, even if we can't get there tomorrow, something that Jeremy Corbyn recently um, showed could be quite appealing in the UK as well. Because I think a lot of Trump's brazen awfulness really reflects this profound cynicism that has come to pervade American politics, um, because on the one hand, neoliberalism, disappearance of good jobs, widening inequality, um, doesn't change under either party. No one offers a real solution to it. On the other hand, the war on terror, which you know began with this neocon vision that was, however, violent and destructive, it turned out to be, um, was initially articulated with this utopianism of we're going to bring democracy to the world, and is now this permanent. Mis- tasticizing cascade of warfare with no one even really pretending there's a solution. So I think there's this profound cynicism and that no is not enough is is an important way to think about this because we need to provide a real comprehensive utopian vision, um, not only to fight Trump, but just to, 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 to provide an alternative to the status quo.
1: Because the crises are real. And, and you know, whether it is economic inequality or economic precariousness, um, you know, deepening racism and surging white supremacy, um, you, you know, or the crisis of climate change, and we are out of time on that front, right? I mean, the the name of the chapter in the book on that is "The Climate Clock Strikes Midnight." And you know, I've just been so. I think we're you know we're seeing these tipping points on 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 so many of these crises, and you know, I've uh, like so many of us been completely horrified and transfixed by. The Glenfell Tower uh, fire in, in London, um, and the way in which it is being sort of instantly understood as an expression of capitalist crisis, of neoliberal crisis, right? On so many levels, like this, you know, uh, um, you know covering the building in this, in this siding so that it was more attractive. to to the, on the outside, but more dangerous on the inside, right? Uh, So that it was all about increasing property values for the wealthy in the area at the direct expense of the safety of the people who lived inside uh, the building. And then, you know, finding out that there were all of these warnings for years about the need to retrofit these buildings with sprinklers. And this brutal cost benefit analysis was imposed that it was too expensive. And one report that I saw was, you know, Said that it would have cost two hundred thousand pounds to do to retrofit the building with sprinklers. Um, You know, I mean, I'm sure in some of the this is one of the this is I think the wealthiest neighborhood in the UK, and I'm sure there are kitchen renos that cost more than what it would have cost to retrofit that building, right? And you know, for me, as somebody who's very immersed in the science of climate change and have seen. A similar brutal cost-benefit analysis imposed by governments, wealthy governments, who are unwilling to do the things necessary to save entire countries from disappearing uh, you know, below, beneath the waves because their GDPs aren't big enough, you know, um, because the people are who, are who suffer most from climate change are overwhelmingly poor black and brown people around the world. So I mean there's this way in which this fire is, you know, it's not a metaphor, it's a microcosm of this broader world on fire. And um, you know, I, I've I, I think we need to connect the dots between so many of these of these intersecting crises that flow from this brutal logic.
0: Yeah. So you have been um writing about all of these issues and the social these injustices and the social movements that fight against them for quite a while uh, when I was a teenager getting into the left around the anti-corporate globalization movement. Um, your book, No Logo, was a just this critical intellectual touchstone of that moment. How, how would you characterize the arc of, of radical left politics in, in the U.S. and maybe in Canada as well um, since that time? Um, through the Bush, sorry, this is a huge question, <laughs> through the Bush administration, mm-hmm. Obama. to question. now. because like, yeah. it, it's been quite a quite a ride and we're in quite a different place, I think.
1: We are in a really different place for better and worse, right? Um, because the, the underlying crises are getting worse. But the, the boldness with which uh, the left is willing to respond to, to, to those crises um, is is also increasing, right? Um, so, you know, the way I would, I guess, characterize it, looking at that arc, right, is that that movement that, you know, you became aware of as a teenager and, um, you know, that, that I kind of caught the wave of when I published No Logo um, just after the, the protests in Seattle that, that brought the World Trade Organization negotiations to a halt was that, you know, this was, this was, these were the first tremors of a revolt against neoliberalism, right? Um I wrote a piece uh about the first world social forum in in 2001, sorry, yeah, to, sorry in 2000 and um the headline was the end of the end of history, right? Um that it was it was like that that was like even saying another world is possible, right? Which is now, uh, you know, a p- political cliche, you know. But even saying that in in, in the year two thousand was like risque, right? Like yeah. that, that that we could, we were allowing ourselves to begin to dream that there was an alternative. We were the spell cast by Margaret Thatcher um, was, was 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 finally starting uh, to 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 lose its its power. And but but yet the persistence. Um, of, of this attack on the political imagination, right? And it is not just about a right-wing attack. It is also about the reality of, uh, of, of the failures of state socialism, right, or, or, or something that called itself a state socialism, um, of authoritarian socialism and communism in the former of Soviet Union, um, in other authoritarian countries, you know, was, all, was a big part of this. Right um, And it took I think that the spell um, the spell has ha- held its power to the extent that we had you know, that, that we were first able to imagine that, that, that there might be another world. We were able to say no to a further imposition of neoliberalism, or do our best by taking on free trade deals winning some important victories, uh, like against the the free trade area of the Americas, which would have created a free trade zone that, that swallowed the whole hemisphere, as you know. Um, and then these very powerful no's that rose up after the 2008 financial crisis with Occupy Wall Street and the movement of the squares all over Europe. Um, but these were still, still movements that were hesitant when it came to putting forward a bold alternative, right? I would say that the no grew more and more confident in these various iterations, right, of these different movements that took on the power of deregulated capitalism, which is really the connective thread, you know, between all all these movements, right? Um, But it isn't until quite recently that we have seen a resurgence of a utopian imagination, a willingness to put a name to an alternative. And I think you see this with the growing popularity of the DSA in in the U.S. Uh, You see it with the popularity of Jacobin. You see it with Corbyn's platform. You see it with Sanders' campaign. Um, I've been involved in a process in Canada called the Leap Manifesto that you know, is our attempt to put forward a bold uh, intersectional platform that connects the dots between climate change, economic inequality, racial justice, uh, gender justice, uh, you know, that rec- reclaim some of the ground on trade back from the right, uh, the, the pseudo-populist right. Um, so, so I think we're, it, 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 for a long time we were able to say no, but not yes. <laughs> um, and it's the yes. I think the big change is that the, the yes is emerging, the confidence of the yes. And I would include on that list the platform uh, that, that came out of the Movement for Black Lives, the Vision for Black Lives, which is a wonderfully bold utopian document um, that is, is really about sweeping social, economic, and political
0: change. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by listeners who support us on Patreon and by Verso, which has been publishing radical books for nearly half a century. One title that we think Dig listeners would enjoy is The Dilemmas of Lenin Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution by Tariq Ali. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, Ali paints an illuminating portrait of the leader of the October 1917 uprising one of the most misunderstood leaders of the 20th century. In his own time, there were many, even among his enemies, who acknowledged the full magnitude of his intellectual and political achievements. But his legacy has been lost in misinterpretation. He is worshipped, but rarely read. The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution, by Tariq Ali. Out now from Verso. Hey, this is Dan Denver, host of The Dig, breaking into the show to remind you that if you are a regular listener and like the show, to consider going to patreon.com and offering us some financial support. We have a bunch of socialist swag to give away, but most importantly, it's your contributions that make this show possible. So please check it out and thank you. And Keep tuning in. In the next few weeks, we'll have interviews with Sarah Jaffe and more. Thanks. Back to the show. You've written that a lot of these these various movements, even as they embrace bolder utopian, yes-oriented visions, still remain somewhat siloed and have yet to really collaborate in a way that truly recognizes the way in which everyone's fights are deeply interconnected. Do you see... Efforts underway to unite these various struggles um, because that seems like a prerequisite for Mm -hmm. taking power in four to eight years.
1: It does, yeah. Um, I mean, I do see it. Um, You know, the 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 people summit. uh, There was a lot of evidence of that. Um, You know, the nurses, the, the NNU has been really great at connecting the dots between their fight for universal public health care and the fight for a healthy planet. You know, they've shown up for every major climate justice battle. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it was really significant the extent to which the People's Summit embraced an intersectional an analysis and 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 framed the challenge as re- really rejecting silos you know the opening night uh we heard from representatives of a lot of racial justice organizations from Million Hoodies to No Dapple to the Women's March um, and 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 that was the coherent message that, that that the delegates heard was you know we we have to get out of our boxes and and connect the dots and and so that's exciting. Uh, the question is, how does this... Sh- and, and I think there are other examples of, of silo-busting, uh, like collaborations between the Black Lives Matter, uh, the Dreamers fight for 15 um, in more than a moment. And um, it, but, but I think we have a ways to go, because we are organizing in the rubble of neoliberalism. So even when we analytically understand how these issues are interconnected, and even when we can write a document that reflects those interconnections, in the day-to-day, people are still organizing within the silo model and not within the context of, you know, mass membership-based organizations that are, that you know, that are built to be intersectional. Um, so it's hard work. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of about glue, right? Like even if you can understand it if intellectually and even if you can come together for, you know, a campaign, what's the glue that holds the groups together um, and how do we resist these models that encourage us to stay apart? Right, um, and I'm not saying that this is that, you know that the task is like one big blob of a movement that erases the differences between uh, between struggles and sort of creates a singular um, you know a singular banner that everybody uh, uh, you know gives up gives their identity <laughs> to. I mean, I think that there, there there are particularities to to movements that need to be that need to be respected, but but I think. Even within that, we can come. To, we can come, respecting that we can come together and, you know, in deep coalition with one another. And I, and I, you know, I think this is really a structural challenge of how we overcome this. Because what I see is that a lot of people are saying that this needs to happen and are really trying, but lack structures that keep us together. If that
0: makes sense. Entirely, all too much, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> For my last question, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you what is going on in Canada. Um, it was a huge deal for Trudeau to finally oust Stephen Harper, replacing a Canadian George W. Bush figure with a warm and friendly sex icon who personally welcomes Syrian refugees. But, um That's sort of like the image that we get from in the mainstream media in the U.S. What's actually going on and what's the state of the organized left up north?
1: Hmm. Well, to be honest with you, I think we are a little bit in our first term Obama moment, you know, the give the guy a chance moment, you know, that maybe he's got a long game moment. (laughs) Um, You know, I think, I'm sure you remember that, um, where where there was just such a huge relief at being rid of, you know, the the this you know the big bad wolf and and just such a relief at being represented by somebody who um you know made, made people proud right um and I think a lot of Canadians feel that way about Trudeau like like they were really embarrassed by uh being represented by Har- Harper with his permanent snarl on the world stage, and that really um you know flew in the face of the way a lot of Canadians see see ourselves. the problem is that a lot of the way Canadian a lot of the way Canadians see themselves are based on very convenient myths. Um, and and so we have this problem of of people liking the fact that the image has changed. And looking away from the fact that the reality has not changed nearly enough, right? So yeah, so we have these memes of the president, sorry, of of the prime minister welcoming refugees uh, at the airport, um, but uh, they have not increased the number of Syrian refugees uh, for this year. Um, They have not even lifted this agreement that we have. Between with the U.S., which is called the Safe Third Country Agreement, which says that if you apply um, to for for, uh, for asylum in the in the U.S., you cannot and are and are rejected. You cannot then apply to Canada um, because the U.S. is seen by Canada as a safe third country. Um, so when the Muslim travel ban was uh, was announced and people were flooding to the airports. Prime Minister Trudeau tweeted, "You know, refugees, welcome. You know, basically, we'll come to us, right? We'll welcome you." And the world just gobbled it up and retweeted it a million times. <laughs> you know, um, but but it was a lie because Canada's not like will not re- uh, uh, welcome people who have been refused entry by the United States, and it would actually be so easy to lift this agreement, and they won't do it. We have our own version of a leader of a prime minister um, who is fantastic at branding and marketing he 's got a very different brand it 's warm and fuzzy and progressive and feminist and you know pro refugee and as a climate leader. but if you look beneath the marketing he 's pushing. Three new tar sands pipelines, Um, if you count the Keystone XL pipeline, which when Trump approved, uh, 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 Trudeau um, was delighted openly, um, and plus two more pipelines on top of that, which you know is completely contradictory with the with the promises he has made uh, on climate change um and despite all the rhetoric of being this warm, fuzzy place for refugees, there's still indefinite detention uh of of immigrants in canada um so you know we have this problem where you know Canadians perennially make themselves feel better by. By, by this sort of we're not as bad as the United States story, which you know, is, is is really a problem um, for uh, the most vulnerable communities because, um, you know, it, we may not be as bad as the U.S. on a lot of fronts, but th- th- it, there's still a lot of things that urgently need changing.
0: Not bad as the U.S. That's a depressingly that's and dangerously low bar. <laughs> <laughs> not... <laughs> um... Yeah,
1: and that's why, you know, I end the book... Um, uh, with this sort of challenge that, um, you know, the, the problem with Trump low, make, lowering the bar so much is that it takes nothing uh, to, to now to, to be better than, than the U.S. Um, and so, you know, we really need to flip this. And, and precisely because what is happening in Washington is so exquisitely dangerous, um, precisely because Washington has gone rogue, that means that, everywhere that is not controlled by these maniacs whether it is city governments in the u.s. state governments or whether it is you know countries outside the u.s the onus is so much greater to do more to prevent them from fulfilling this incredibly dangerous agenda. And I think we saw some great examples of this when Trump announced the withdrawal from the Paris Accord. And we saw hundreds of city mayors step forward and say, well, we're still committed. And the mayor of Pittsburgh say, well, we're going to get to 100% renewable energy by 2035, which is a a, a you know very bold goal, um, and that's exactly what we need to see. We need to see ambition increasing on every front in response to to what's happening in Washington.
0: Naomi Klein, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. great to talk with you, Dan.
0: Naomi Klein is a journalist and the author, amongst many other things of No is not enough, resisting Trump's shock politics and winning the world we need. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our newly minted postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on Patreon, and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a big help.